The communication and media studies is a highly interdisciplinary field. How does one think about tenure and promotion in a space then where there are multiple criteria of worth and multiple forms of evaluation? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Arcelia Gutierrez, this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I'm thrilled to have with me today Arcelia Gutierrez. Arcelia is assistant professor in the Department of Hispanic Studies at the University of Kentucky. She did her bachelor's in literature and in Latin American studies, uh, literature in Spanish and Latin American studies at the University of California, San Diego. Her PhD in Romance, Languages and Literatures at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She's widely published, even though she's finished uh, not so long ago her PhD. She has publications in critical studies of uh, media communications, television and new media, feminist media histories, among others. She is also very active in the community. Uh, for instance, she's co-chair of the Latino Latina Caucus at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And overall, her research program centers on uh, Latinx media advocacy and activism uh, over the past several decades, in particular since the 1990s to the present. So, Arcelia, welcome to Café Latinx. I'm thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having, for having me here. It's such a pleasure to be in dialogue with you. Pleasure is all mine and the listeners. Um, so, so, Arcelia, how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of, of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yes, it's a long journey, um, but I'll say that um, I grew up in a working class ethnic enclave, um, a Latinx ethnic enclave in Long Beach, California. Um, and so my mom always believed in the value of education. Um, and so she was a stay-at-home mom, uh, made sure that we were on top of our schoolwork and because of her efforts, um, you know, I ended up being placed in, what is it, the magnet school tracks, right? What we call the gifted children um, in my community. Um, and so ever since then, um, I was just on the college prep track um, since elementary school. And um, eventually I ended up going to the University of California, San Diego. I started off as an economics major thinking I wanted to do business school of all things. <laughs> um, and I decided, you know what, I want to work on my Spanish a little bit more. Um, so I double majored in Spanish, 
had a fantastic professor, uh, Dr. Luis Martin Cabrera, um, who just like challenged every notion that I had been socialized to believe growing up in America. Um, and just really made me question my worldview, right? Um, and his classes were always just engaging, interesting material through his classes and then uh, classes in the Chicano, Chicana, Latino, Latina studies program. I started to see myself more represented, um, right? You don't often hear about Latinx communities growing up in our textbooks or, you know, um, in the history of the US. And so that was one of the first times that I started to learn about Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, Latinx leaders um, in our history. Um, and yeah, it was Dr. Uh, Martin Cabrera who was like, you know what, I think you would be a good professor. And <laughs> I remember telling him, but what if I get a student like myself who's always challenging you and, you know, just <laughs> doesn't agree, <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, and he was like, you'll figure it out. It'll be great. Um, so from there, yeah, we started um, designing a research project for me. I was also part of the McNair Scholars Program that helps first-generation college students uh, get on track and be, become prepared to apply for graduate school, graduate school. So that was invaluable knowledge for me as a first-gen student who didn't know how to navigate higher education, let alone right, graduate programs and applying to them. Um, that was invaluable knowledge for me. From there, I went to uh, the University of Michigan and um, I, I uh, was a, a student in the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by a great intellectual community. All of the faculty and the students there um, are really generous um, and, and engage with you intellectually in a way that, that I found really beautiful. Uh, there, um, I started off wanting to look at Venezuelan cultural productions. It then morphed into looking at Colombia as a production center for Latin American and Latinx media, as particularly looking at telenovelas and the narco genre. Um, and um, I had a colleague at the time who was working on uh, Cuban uh, Latinx uh, media activism and introduced me to the work of Cho Noriega. Thereafter, I, I learned about the work of the National Hispanic Media Coalition and my project just shifted into really embracing and looking at contemporary forms of Latinx media advocacy um, and activism. So in a whirlwind, that's how I ended up here. Well, that's a great whirlwind. I, I have so many questions. Um, so, so you went straight from uh, your bachelor's to your PhD? Uh, traded, is that what you mean? No, no, you oh, went straight. directly, yes, uh, from one to the other. Yes, I went straight. I graduated, what was it, 2013 in June. And then a few days later, I had to fly to Michigan to start a summer program for, yes, for the PhD. Um, so yeah, straight. Um, I didn't get my, my, um, my master's. Um, I got the master's en route uh, through the PhD. Right. And so you went to a department uh, of Romance and Language Studies, but your work has migrated more and more towards the area of media studies. Did you have an interest in media when you started? Uh, how did that come about? You know, go yeah. from Venezuelan cultural production to Colombian telenovelas, etc. So how, how was that journey? 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I always had right that affinity for cultural production. Um, in undergrad, I worked a lot with uh, film. Um, and so that's where I saw myself going, right? It's, um, it's cultural production, but coming from like a Spanish department side, right? Not necessarily a media side. Um, but once I arrived to uh, Michigan, um, well, the, the department is very interdisciplinary. We have a lot of film and um, scholars within our department. And so that made it easy, right, to continue uh, taking classes about these topics. My advisor, Alejandro Herrero Olaizola, taught a class about um, Latin American cultural production, but really looking at film and media. And so, right, that's another space where I got to learn more about that. Um, in addition, uh, our program is interdisciplinary in that it allows you to take courses outside of the department. Mm -hmm. So I took many, many, many courses in <laughs> what is now the radio, um, television, and uh, uh, film program at, at Michigan. And um, the American Studies program houses a lot of Latinx scholars, but Latinx scholars that also do film and media studies. And so um, there I worked with people like J.V. Rivero, uh, Colin Gunkel, who all ended up on my committee. Yevi is uh, one of my uh, co-chairs. And so, um, yeah, taking classes with them. Um, I remember taking Colin's class and looking more at the industrial side of um, the telenovela production, right? Um, yeah, and I think for him, he was one of the, the ones to really push us to understand methods. How do you employ methods? What, you know, different results do you get when you look at things from a different perspective? And so his course was instrumental in pushing me towards the Latinx study side, the media study side. Um, also the work, uh, I took a class with Dan Herbert who works on critical media industry studies. Um, and so that, that pushed me in that direction. And as for how I got to this project specifically, mm -hmm. um, I was actually on Facebook and somehow the work of the, like I said, the, the National Hispanic Media Coalition popped up and I'm like, what is this thing? And so I went on a deep dive, you know, Google search for hours and I was like, oh my gosh, like they're fighting for Latinx representation and participation in the media. This is like Chon Noriega's work, but like he stops at the 80s, right? And that's where they come in and I'm like, there's a new thing that has to be worked on. Um, so I just found it really exciting and that's how I ended up pivoting my project to that. That's really interesting. So in essence, you shifted from Latin American cultural production, right, to Latino USA, Latinx USA. Um, how was that journey for you intellectually? Yeah, um, I mean, you, what is Latin American studies and what is Latinx studies are very different, right, trajectories, histories there are a lot of intersections, right? And so I think that facilitated my jump into understanding Latinx studies combined with my personal experience growing up as a Latina in this country. Um, but yeah, I, it took a lot of work to really become well-versed in what is Latinx studies proper, right? And so it takes a lot of reading um, from work coming from anthropology, history, right? Film and media studies, sociology. So you have to read broadly to be well-versed and understand um, this history and, talk, and how to talk about it in a nuanced way. Plus, uh, you have to obviously be well-versed in media studies, right? So it took a lot of reading and preparation um, to become, um, you know, uh, well-versed in these areas. But when it's something that you are passionate about, that you enjoy, it doesn't feel like a lot of work. It is, you know, but 
there's something really special about reading about your own histories, your community's history, um, and getting to write about it and talk about it and share it with other people. Absolutely. So, so since you've done this journey and you clearly done a lot of thinking, um, you know, the more typical case is people who work on Latin America and stay on that, people who work on Latino USA and stay on that. But you've done, I mean, not everybody does that. I mean, but, but you've done a very interesting journey. How would you characterize both the differences and also the points of possible intersection? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how, I, I mean, if, if I were explaining it sometimes to my students, right, I think about it, understanding Latin American history is understanding often the histories of nation states, right, what was before the nation state, right, and even contemporary issues um, within that, racial formations within Latin America, how gender operates, sexuality, etc., right, so you have that end. Then um, for the US, um, it's really starting to think about it um, in 1848, right? The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that places the end to the Mexican-American War and in essence starts the origin of what we now consider a Latinx, right? Um, history. Um, and I think um, the history of Latinx in the US and the scholarship is concerned with how is it that these populations navigate US society, right? US politics. And it tends to be always almost like a confrontational relationship, always fighting for rights, belonging, inclusion within this uh, country. Um, so it's just different points of interest, right? The thematic that Latinx studies explores uh, versus um, Latin American studies. However, um, in terms of immigration, right? That is a point of intersection, right? Between these two thinking of transnational movements of people, right? These flows. Um, and I think to, to be able to teach Latinx studies really well and understand the nuances of each sub like ethno-racial group, you need to have a background in Latin American studies, right? Because I can't talk about the Central American diaspora in the US in a nuanced way without understanding, right? The history of the civil wars in, in the region that pushed people to come to the US, how that then shapes their experiences in this country, right? Um, and in terms of overthinking about race to and, and gender, right? It's always taking into account the hierarchies or the systems, right? That come from these immigrants at times, right? To the US that then become mediated here and join what um, US, um, you know, racism or sexism, classism might look like. So yeah, to have that nuanced understanding, I think you need to have a background in both. That's super interesting. Um, in terms of your experience as a student, in particular during your, your PhD, but also undergraduate, how um, did your positionality sort of shape that experience? And, and how did it affect you? You alluded in part about uh, what I'm gonna ask a little bit, but if, if you can expand, it would be great. Um, how did it shape what you chose to study and specialize in? Yeah. Um... I, I always knew that I wanted to write something that I had a connection to, right? Um, and I think um, with Latin, Latin American media, right? Like the telenovelas, like I grew up watching this. I, I, I'm a children of immigrants, you too, okay? So from 7 p.m. to what was it, 9 p.m., the three hours of telenovelas hooked on, right? Watching everything Marimar to Amor Real, anything that was on Univision, 
we would have it tuned on, right? Um, and even the teen telenovelas too. I don't remember what time those came on here. I think like around 3 p.m. And so I had that um, understanding, right, of it. I, I didn't realize that it was a very particular um, experience that was actually an asset until I went to graduate school, right? You think like, oh no, everyone must grow up. If you're Latinx, you watch telenovelas. And then you start understanding, well, not everyone speaks Spanish, right? Not everyone turns into US Spanish language media. And you have an angle and an expertise just by your lived experience alone that other people don't, right? Um, and so that's how I started with that project. Um, with the, uh, the media studies project, I mean, I think it came from one, um, like I said, not knowing our history, it's not taught in schools often, right? Textbooks erase us from, from um, these histories. You talk to students, you say 1848, and they're like, what are you talking about, right? Like, they just think every Latinx person is Mexican and that is it. Um, and there's such a diversity and richness uh, within what is Latinidad. And so I knew I, I wanted to focus on that. And uh, I mean, I wasn't a student activist when I was an undergrad, so I think my affinity for, you know, um, fighting the system at times comes from that. And so I just felt really pulled towards that project of, of advocacy and activism as it relates to Latinx um, media. Okay. And um, you also been an institutional builder, right, within the Society of Cinema Media Studies and other fora. Um, how has that experience been, and how does that how has that sort of shaped in part what you study and how you go about studying what you study? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I'll answer this a little differently, but it's it's a lot of labor that you're doing, right? Because you feel a, a responsibility for your community or for other marginalized communities. Um, I attended a predominantly white institution, even San Diego, right? Even though San Diego was a little bit more diverse. Um, but a lot of students of color or marginalized students just aren't admitted or, you know, they're not supported in the way that they need to be given often the communities that they're coming from being first gen, right? Um, and so you feel the sense of obligation, like you have to do something because you look back and you're like, I'm the only one from my community from Long Beach probably that has made it to this point. And that's wrong, right? Like, why is it that every other kid can't have the opportunity to do what I did? Um, so yes, you feel that sense of, okay, how do I start changing the system to open doors for other people, which is great. But at the same time, it's, it's a lot of work that you're juggling, right? Often unpaid labor that you're doing that institutions should be doing or should be paying people to do, but it falls on the work of graduate students or marginalized faculty that, you know, step in to help, uh, try to do this work. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm at this point where I like six years of graduate school, two years on the job now, and I feel exhausted, exhausted. I'm like, yeah, you know, like I, and even thinking of the summer, right? Like now people are starting to wake up to it and it's like, okay, great, but we need more of a commitment um, to really change how things function. And I don't know if that's possible, right? A lot of DEI service or committees, it's like token representation, or it doesn't really lead to structural change. And after years of doing it, you start becoming tired, right? You're like, what does it look like to have actual structural change within the university? So what, what then do you think would sort of help propel change to the next level? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we need to hire more marginalized faculty, right? You look at the numbers and 
you can expect a change if you're not hiring people in which students will see themselves represented, right? Um, on the other hand, it's, um, it's changing um, recruiting and retention tactics, right? Because yes, you can bring students, right? But if you're bringing students from low-income backgrounds that don't have the experience, right? That don't even understand how to navigate this in a year or less than that, they're gonna drop out or they're gonna be failing courses, right? And so we need that support system. And some universities do a good job of creating bridge programs and supporting students. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't just, it's, you know, higher education is not the only problem. It's the K to 12 pipeline. Right. Um, if I look at myself, right, I grew up in a working class neighborhood, like schooling. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that some teacher decided that I was smart enough, should get IQ tested and therefore put in a track that I'm like, I'm the gifted kid. Right. Um, but again, that's like maybe 30 students per, you know, the, per grade that get that experience. And, and that's not fair to other students. And so I think that also requires like more public investment and funding of public education, right? Uh, this, this country hasn't done a, a good job of that in the, for a while now, and you see the consequences of that. So we need to reinforce that K-12 pipeline, right, to support marginalized students, hire more faculty of color, um, recruit more students, and more uh, retention strategies as well. Cool. And so, so you mentioned Society for Cinema and Media Studies, so better say I mentioned that because I know you are active in that. Um, so, so you're coming from the humanities side of sort of the media studies, um, you know, spectrum. Um, and um, you attended actually your, your PhD is from uh, Romance Languages and Literatures. Um, how was your experience on the job market? How was the switch from that to Hispanic studies, but also publishing mostly media studies? Right, and I see your work, and I see the work of a media studies scholar, not necessarily somebody trained in in literature. Um, so, so how has been that experience, both on the sort of purely occupational side, you know, where to get a job, and also, you know, how to craft an argument, the decision of where to submit manuscripts. Um, I'm I'm assuming you are working on a book manuscript uh, from from your dissertation. So how to think about which publisher to send that, and how to position the work, etc. If you can elaborate, because it's a very interesting trajectory, yours. Yeah. Um, so early on in my uh, PhD career, like once I was a candidate, I read um, oh, Carrie Ann Rockamore's Rockamore's uh, How to Win Tenure as a Black Academic Without Losing Your Soul. I know I just butchered the name, but it's something similar, right? Um, and in it, I think she says, uh, make yourself tenurable to the field, right? You want to see yourself in, not necessarily to like an institution per se. And so um, even as a, I was a graduate student, it's, you have to think about how you're going to make yourself marketable, right? And it's, it's really horrible that you have to think of yourself as a commodity, but in this market that is pretty much decimated, that is what you have to think of, right? And so I knew, okay, so my teaching experience is coming from a Spanish language program, right? I can, I can do that, I can sell myself as that. Um, uh, at Michigan, we had the opportunity to design a course and teach it as an instructor of record. Um, and so there I was like, how do I sell myself as a broader, you know, like a more film or media studies scholar. And so I did a course about Latin American um, and Latinx immigration film, right? Um, and so, okay, now you have that teaching experience that can make you 
um, you know, maybe more marketable for other types of departments. In terms of publishing, I'm like, if someone sees that I come from a romance languages department, right? they might not read me as a media scholar scholar whatsoever and discount me right and so then i was like i need to brand myself as a media scholar by publishing in these journals right and so how do i start thinking about structure and um and arguments and you you read extensively the work coming out of media studies right you look at some of the recent articles published in the target journals that you're going after what is it that they're publishing? What does the structure look like? How do they shape arguments, right? And you start then learning how to replicate that um, and sell yourself as that. I mean, it's not that you're selling yourself, but you are that, right? Um, the, the literature that you engage with really shapes you, right, as a scholar and the work that you're, you're producing. So, I mean, I'll say that it was a lot of work because on the one hand, right, I'm coming from the Latin American studies perspective, right, from a romance languages, I was really good at textual analysis, right? Coming into it. Um, then in graduate school, you're reading more broadly, you're reading in media studies, you're experimenting with methods. And I think methods was the biggest jump for me, right? Um, I'm used to grabbing a novel and reading and telling you about it or uh, watching a film and, and telling you about it. But now it's like, oh, if I wanna do industrial analysis, that takes uh, a lot of different work. If I wanna do archival research, what does that look like? If I wanna do audience studies, IRB, I have to deal with IRB now, right? Um, so it was a lot of learning as I was going um, and I was lucky enough to have really supportive and generous mentors that helped me through the process. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I found it as an asset because I was interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. Um, I, I was applying to Spanish jobs, Latinx studies jobs and media studies jobs. So the three, and so you, I had my cover letters, um, right? Or how you angle certain things, uh, right? My teaching statement for a Spanish department looked different than one for a Latinx studies department or a media studies department. So you, you learn um, how to shift things that you maybe highlight or don't highlight in certain documents. And for anyone going on the market, um, uh, the professor is in, um, her, her book, right? Is really helpful in, in preparing you for that. So, and which of these three fields do you feel more at home now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, right now I see um, Spanish is um, what I teach, right? That's kind of the, the teaching side of things. The research side of things is uh, very much focused. It's, it's a, a mesh of Latinx studies and media studies, right? I do Latinx media studies. I'm reading in these two fields to join them and become the third third um, field. So yeah, I would say Latinx media studies. And, and what, how has been your work received in terms of the conversations that you have in terms of the reviews? And it, because it's not, I mean, it's very interesting that, you know, in the US, Latino population is nearing 20%, it's 18.3 according to the latest census. It's essentially one in every five people who live in this country um, self-identify as such. But if you look at the volume of output in the, say media studies, it's probably, it's not 20% for sure, it's probably not even 5%. Right, um, so there is a, a tremendous void there. Um, how has the you know the review process, the colleagues, the conference circuit, etc., 
How, how has your work been resonating with that? Yeah, um, for the review process, I've been, I think, very lucky that it's been sent out to people that are experts in my particular discipline. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm sure that right, someone that I know has reviewed my, my pieces. Um, and the, the field is small, but it has incredibly generous people in it who really want to support junior scholars, right? And so I haven't gotten the, the takedown review. The reviewer number two has, you know, I haven't gotten that yet, crossing my fingers. Um, it's all been critical, but really good feedback on how to improve. And it's gone to people that actually really understand what I'm talking about. It has been amazing. I've been lucky that that's happened. Um, as for uh, conferences, I tend to go to spaces where I know people will understand my work and it'll be valued, right? Um, and so that's a decision, right, for me personally. Um, SEMS has the, the Latino Latina Latinx Caucus. And even I, I attended my first conference as a graduate student not presenting. And that was one of the spaces where I was like, okay, you know, this is a very maybe not as diverse conference, right? However, I have this caucus, I have this space where I have people that are, are, are supportive, will understand my work. Um, and so it just made me feel invested in the organization since the first time that, um, that I attended. As for my colleagues here in, in my department, I mean, they're, I think they're all on board and recognizing the importance of right, Latinx studies. Um, and even in a Spanish department, right? Spanish departments historically haven't embraced Latinx studies as much. It's seen as identity politics or ethnic studies or American studies, right? Um, but I would say that uh, Trump changed that. Um, you, you can't, I mean, right, the, the way he vilified Latinx communities in, in the U.S., I think added like gravitas to this area of study and that it's important to talk about these issues. How is it that, um, you know, the history of, of Latinx within this country, culture, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. And, you know, you've been on the job now as an assistant professor for a couple of years, correct? Yeah, this is my second year. So year and a half. A year and a half. Um, so how has the transition been from being a graduate student to being an assistant professor? Yes. Um, oh boy. Um, <laughs> it's so much more work. I think as a graduate student, you think you're pulled in so many directions and you are, you know, when you're on the market, it's a lot of work. But I remember I started in August and by October, I was like, what is going, what are all of these meeting requests? Why do I have meetings all the time? How am I supposed to get my research done? I have two new preps, like, you know, it's, it's a lot to juggle. You, yes, you're pulled in so many directions. Um, and especially as a person of color, a woman of color in these times, right? Um, yeah, uh, diversity service is um, a hot commodity, right? And so you get pulled in so many directions. Um, and I've had to learn to protect my time. Uh, service is not going to get me uh, tenure, right? It's it's my publications are what are going to yeah what are going to get me tenure, and so you have to learn how to dip diplomatically say no. You know, you're always very generous. Thank you for the invitation. You know, at the moment, blah blah blah. Um, it's learning how to how to say no and and, and protect your time. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I don't know if I fully processed it. I mean. In March, right, it was my first year we got hit with the pandemic. And so the transition into online teaching, you're spending the summer now prepping for what online courses will look like. It's this new thing. Um, 
Yes. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. So, so what, what, what strategies have you implemented to deal with that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so wherever possible, um, where I have maybe, um, graduate seminars or elective courses, um, 400 level classes, I try to create classes that relate to my research. Mm -hmm. um, so, right, so I, I taught a Latinx and Latin American media activism class last school year. And so that allows me to refresh my memory on scholarship that I haven't touched in a while, right, for the book project or um, read new scholarship that I want to include. Um, one of the courses that I teach every semester, every year now is, um, it's like an intro to Latinx studies, it's US Latino culture and politics. And so that course specifically just allowed me to become so much more comfortable in my expertise in Latinx studies. And you know, you have this little bit of an imposter syndrome, I'm coming right out of grad school, right, and th thrown into these classes. Um, and yeah, it is, you know, it gives you that confidence like, yeah, actually I know what I'm talking about and I am an expert in this and I am great. So I'm gonna go with that, you know? Um, for graduate seminars, um, the same thing. Um, I did one on interdisciplinary studies and Latinx studies and another one on transnational media studies focusing on Latin American and Latinx media. And so whenever possible, I try to include as many texts that would be relevant to my my research um, and being in conversation with graduate students, right? It's really smart people. It just keeps you on your toes. And, you know, you, sometimes you get ideas like, oh, I was thinking through this idea, but now I'm discussing it here and you know where to go to make a certain argument, right? Or I need to um, tap more into this theme. Um, that has been a good strategy. I'm trying to think of what else. We often have this idea that we have to like be super, 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 super prepared for teaching. And yes, prepare, but don't do overkill, right? I think it's the imposter syndrome that comes in and you just want to be, yeah, it is, right? Um, but it, it's okay. Like, you know your stuff and you can lead a conversation for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, no problem without having every single point outlined. That's okay. Um, I think for me, I embrace an active learning um, teaching style whenever possible, right? If you're doing a large lecture class, that is not, not possible, but it's also inverting, right? Like putting responsibility on students to also, you know, help create the learning for this classroom. And so that's been a, a great strategy as well. And I will reiterate one more time, say no to a lot of service. Absolutely, amen to that. Um, especially when you're a junior, when you're a senior, it's more complicated, but. Um, so, and the transition from dissertation to book, uh, how has that process been for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I have one article out that was based on the second chapter of the book. Um, and then this last article on the Oscar So White, um, it, was, it was something that I knew I wanted to put out in an article format just because oh. it's timely. This, this has to be out, right? It can't wait for the book to be out. And so I knew that that chapter is going to have to be reimagined and transformed and another case study will go in there. Um, but most of the other case studies are, I mean, are good as they are. I had a little bit of a setback because of the pandemic. I was scheduled to go to New York to look at some archives. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can't do that anymore, right? And so you pivot. I mean, whatever online access I had to certain materials, that's what I'm working with. Now the second part of that chapter is reimagined and I'm adding another mini case study 
So that one will look at Puerto Rican and Cuban American media activism in terms of film. Um, we'll make it work. It's it'll be fine. You know, it's not ideal. It's not what I imagined. But you pivot. Um, and the other ones are are pretty in really good shape. Just the biggest issue that I had um, at the defense was like, okay, I know I have these case studies. I loosely put on a theory and an argument and made it work, right? Um, but I, that theory that I was working with, right, just didn't feel right. And so that's what was so great about teaching these classes um, in my field. It allowed me to read more broadly. It allowed me to reread stuff. And I was like, okay, I finally found like the theories that, that just make sense with my project and the argument that's gonna carry them through, right? But that only came as a result of my uh, teaching this first, that first year, right? Um, so that was the, the biggest uh, challenge that I had. And now I have the idea for the, the last case study. Um, I have a lot of research on it. It's just sitting down and, and writing. Um, and then right now I'm currently working on my book proposal. I should hopefully send it out by end of April. We'll see how things go, but that's, that's the goal. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with the, the book proposal and reimagining the dissertation into the book. So, but it seems that you have made a lot of progress in a year and a half, um, and you are confident in the project. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wrote my dissertation thinking of it as a book. Um, okay, no, that, yeah. that explains it, okay. That's yeah, fine. so mm -hmm, that's why I think it, it's the case studies were built, built in from the beginning to shape it as a book, right? Decades, looking at, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's why I'm like, why do more work when you don't need to? Let's start there and then you, you reimagine it um, as you go on. Wonderful, because I, I ask you, sometimes it takes two to three years for people to transition from the mindset of a dissertation into the mindset of a, of a book manuscript. But I mean, you were smart enough to preempt that by just writing a book, you know, first version of a book manuscript as your dissertation. Yeah, exactly. That's very smart. Did you, so did you know going into the writing of the dissertation that you wanted to do that? Or was that something that happened? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I never actually received training on how to write a dissertation. It's something that you're write the dissertation and you're working on the dissertation. Mm -hmm. But what that actually looked like in my field, I wasn't really sure. And so for me, the best models that I had to work with was looking at the books that I was constantly reading, right? And so that looked like case studies, right? That looked like that theory, that argument running through, right? You have the significance, the conclusion will be, you know, wrap it up or the epilogue or... Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, and talking to people in other fields, they're like, oh, the, your first chapter is your literature review. And for me, it just, that wasn't intuitive, right? I'm like, why am I gonna write a literature review when that already goes in like the intro and then each chapter in a sense makes its own literature review because there's such different case studies, right? I need to contextualize the eighties. I need to contextualize uh, protests against film. I can't do that in one chapter. It just doesn't make sense for my project. And so it came, I, I think organically because of that. Um, but I'll say that I think like reading some professionalization books, right? I think that's the advice you're getting more and more now. Write it as if it were a, a very early draft of a book and not necessarily a dissertation. Absolutely. So Arcelia, we, we've talked about your trajectory. We've talked about your research, your teaching, your experience as a faculty member, you're navigating multiple fields of inquiry. Um, so if you, if you 
as a way of wrapping it up, right? If, if you have magical powers that could be granted one wish about how you'd like any or all of the fields of inquiry you navigate, right? Um, to change, what would you wish for? Yes. I'm going to request that the genie grant me three wishes instead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, those would be, I think, the first one, right, for thinking of like media studies. Um, often the type of work that we do is maybe like ghettoized or pigeonholed, right? You're seen as like your stuff only goes in the diversity week or the race week, right? Um, and so I think it would be great, um, especially how, I mean, politics in this country are developing, how race relations are developing, right? If there could be a fundamental change in perspective, right? That there's more to be learned from our research than just the race thing, right? Or the gender thing or whatever it may be, but that maybe reading this work helps you fundamentally understand how media operates, right? How industries operate, right? How whiteness in this country might operate, how oppression, right? How power works. Um, so I think that would be one of uh, my, my wishes. The second one, um, selfishly, right, going through the tenure process right now, tenure expectations are really, really high for people that have, yes, <laughs> made it this far. You're lucky to make it this far, and we are grateful to make it this far, but you're jumping so many hoops, so many expectations, and especially if you're a marginalized person, there's so many expectations and burdens placed on you in terms of service that aren't rewarded in tenure. Um, and so you have to be like a unicorn where you're like, I have to be great at publishing and a great uh, teacher, but also the, you know, the great person at doing service. It's not healthy. I, I can speak for myself, right? I, I worked straight for a year with almost no sustained time off and that's not healthy, right? And so I think we need to reimagine what the tenure process looks like, especially if we want to be more invested in our communities. Um, how do we value that type of work, right? Um, and the last thing, I think broadly, um, I think we need to uh, reinvest in public education and higher education, see it as a public good, right? We need funds from the state level, the federal level, um, broadly to change a lot of the conditions that we're facing. Um, so, I mean, we talk about, right, uh, graduate students, right? Um, not having opportunities in the, in the professoriate, the labor market, um, adjuncts being exploited in this in this profession, right? And so thinking more broadly, I mean, I think that could be my magical wand if we could just invest more funds and create more, more job opportunities for people and for people to value the humanities um, and how critical they are for what we call a democracy, right? Maybe we wouldn't have a January 6th if, you know, more people understood and took humanities courses and yeah, and our democracy wouldn't be crumbling as much if, yeah, if we if we if we valued this type of education. Wonderful! What a better way to conclude this great conversation than that with that. Thank you so much, Arcelia, uh, for fascinating insights. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to this episode of El Café Latinx, and I want to invite everybody to listen to the next one. Have a uh, wonderful rest of your day, Arsenia, and thanks again for spending uh, time with us and for sharing your knowledge and experience. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.